Well, good morning, everyone. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, you can find Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, it'll be up on the board here soon enough there, Eric. Romans 13 and the first seven verses. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant or minister for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the minister or servant of God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Can I get an amen? (laughs) That's pretty funny. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now the Apostle Paul has taken us from our relationship to God in the first 11 chapters of Romans and even the first two verses of chapter 12 to our relationship to one another in the body of Christ For the balance of chapter uh, 12, use of our gifts, understanding ourselves in this world, know yourself, you know, find your place, use your gifts. And now he's dealing with our relationship to the governing authorities in our lives. And I'm really glad for our sake that this is a week after the election. So there's no prejudice here or anything like that. But let's get a few things straight before we dive into this. First, congrats to the Republicans on a big victory last week. Oh my goodness. I'm not sure where your loyalties lie in politics, but let's just say that uh, though I never alluded to the election, there was an elephant in the room, if you know what I mean. But seriously, whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, know this. When Jesus Christ returns, he won't come on an elephant or a donkey. You want to know something else? The government will be on his shoulder. And those, that's, those are broad shoulders there. One more thing. 
until then, until that day Jesus comes back and sets up his everlasting government, the Christian's true citizenry is in heaven. And therefore, his ultimate allegiance is to God. Paul said this and said it in just so many words. But your, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so I'd like to say that Christians are heavenly citizens holding earthly visas. God has erected three pillars in every society. The family, the people of God, or what today would be the church, and government. We don't talk a lot about government. We like to separate these things. We don't consider it a spiritual entity. But God has given us a pillar, which he calls government, and this is the primary text dealing with our responsibilities to government and, contrarywise, government's responsibilities toward its people. And there are differing governments, totalitarianism, socialism, communism, democracy, and then you have the republic, which is what Rome was. In fact, our own government was sort of based on the Roman rule of law. And it doesn't really matter what you're underneath, and you're listening to this in some communist country, or you're listening to this in some socialistic country, or you're listening to this in some totalitarian country, which you probably wouldn't get a chance to listen to it, because by definition, a totalitarian country would keep freedom from getting in. But if you happen to be listening to this, then you should know that you have a God-given divine responsibility to subject yourself, submit yourself to the governing authorities. You want to know why? Because that's what the Bible says. That's why. And the word submit or subject there is a, a military term. It means to get yourself underneath. It means to rank yourself under. That's what it means. I mean, and we have a vivid illustration of this in Jeremiah 29. We don't need to go there. But there in Jeremiah, it was, the people of Israel were not only conquered, but they were transported to another land. It would be as if ISIS became so powerful that they came into our country, invaded us, conquered us, and then took a large section of us and made us live amongst the rocks of the Middle East. And what would you do? How would you respond? Jeremiah says, here's, how, here's what you need to do, children of God living in another country. He says to them, he says, here's what you do. You, you build, you plant, you marry, you have kids, you pray for the peace of the government you are under. Have you ever read that? That's what he says. So here Paul gives us some Equally clear reasons, as well as some teaching on the simple purposes of government here. So let's get into it, shall we? Why do we submit ourselves to the powers that be that God has placed over us? Is it because they fit our political allegiance? Is it because we happen to like them? Of course you know the answer to that question. First, because government derives its power from God. Any government 
has been given his power from God. Look at these, the wording here. He says, it's except from God, instituted by God. God has appointed. You see all that? For there is no authority, verse 1, except from God. The powers that exist have been instituted by God. Resist the authorities, then you resist what God has appointed. And the, and the word resist, by the way, bolt, that's also a military term. It means to take your stand against, which almost sounds Christian-like sometimes, doesn't it? And it is, but those times are more rare than you can imagine. So, this is a little bit like, remember when Jesus was talking to Pilate, and Pilate said, do you remember that? He said, you know, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus said, you would have no power unless it was given to you from above. That's the idea here. No power. And yet when one reads this passage of Scripture as we just did, and then places it next to our Declaration of Independence... It hardly becomes a proof text for the revolution. You know, shortly after I became a Christian, the founding of our country became a, uh, and, the, and the founding fathers and the Constitution and our, our rebellion against Great Britain and the whole nine yards was one of the first things I had to tackle. I don't know why, I just I remember having to get into arguments and I can remember constantly defending our forefathers you know, objection to tyranny and, you know, taxation without representation, the whole nine yards. But in the Declaration of Independence itself, uh, if if you skip down, of course, you all have one in front of you, right? In the second paragraph, these are familiar words to you and probably too familiar. But let me read it to you anyway. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Really? They are all endowed with, by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and John Locke said property, but Thomas Jefferson being the deist that he was and whatnot, he said the pursuit of happiness. Now listen to this. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, unquote. Now, I'm here to preach the word, not the Declaration of Independence, but does that sound like it lines up with Scripture? Just do this. No, it does not. Governments do not derive their power from the consent of men. They derive their powers from God. That's why the psalmist said, God raises up one, puts down another. Exaltation does not come from the east or the west or the south. God is the judge who sets up one and puts down another, Psalm 75. So it's not like God was in heaven last uh, Tuesday night wringing his hands over the outcome in North Carolina. I was. But God, while using the system of government that he, he has graced us, its citizens, with, that he's used these, the blessing of the 
powers of the electorate. I mean, virtually unheard of in any society before our own. Not even the Roman society, not really. Had already chosen who would come to power. He knew that, and you know that too, don't you? This should encourage us and be an inspiration to obey the governing authorities and submit to them because we realize that God is the one who places them over us. Better to have a bad government than no government at all. Because where there is no authority, if there's no revelation, the people cast off restraint, the writer of, of Proverbs said, right? Here's a second reason we ought to be submissive, because governments implement God's decrees. Look at verses 2 through 4. Well, just look at verse, skip down to verse 4. For he, the government, is God's minister or servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So governments are given to us by God to implement his decrees They're servants or ministers, avengers who carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And if you read through the Old Testament, and many of you have, you see repeatedly God sending foreign forces, nations, into Israel who've been disobedient. His children have been disobedient. And what does he use them? He uses them to carry out his plans, to carry out his wrath in some cases. Many die, they get carted off into um, captivity, etc. because of their disobedience. But God uses nations to punish other nations. I think it was one of our, I just thought of this, one of our uh, statesmen, early statesmen said because, something like this, because a nation cannot be punished in eternity, he must, it must be punished in the here and now. So that's the way God operates. And so he uses other nations oftentimes to do that. And he says in verse 4, he doesn't bear the sword in vain. This is a reference to the executioner sword. They didn't use swords to spank people. And he says he does not bear the sword in vain. That, That has a note of sarcasm to it, does it not? That's like saying we don't keep electric chairs for home decorators. The sword here is a New Testament validation of capital punishment. Since there's not a shred of evidence in the pen of Paul in writing it that he's, he's against that. In fact, he purposely uses a sword. He doesn't use the whip. He doesn't use the stocks. He doesn't use harsh retribution, all of which were in play in those days. But you, if you want, capital punishment is established in Romans, or rather Genesis 9, verse 6. Noah comes out of the ark. God says to Noah, things are different now. He who sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Have you ever read that? that he puts the responsibility of capital punishment into the hands of government. Nevertheless, government and all its authority and governing powers are to be the implementers of God's will. This is, uh, this is the idea behind that proverb that says, if you strike the scoffer, the simple will, will beware. Proverbs 21, right? Modern-day prisons, by the way, are, are a relatively new thing to world history. Do you know that? 
The Bible doesn't know anything about prisons, really. Uh, we got a, we got more prisoners in our country than any country on the face of the earth, by far even. The Bible doesn't recognize any punishments in the Bible were corporal, restitutional, or that is, the the you know the the villain would have to pay rest some some form of heavy restitution depending on the crime, or in many cases it was capital punishment. Prisons, really the kinds that we know were virtually unheard of before 1800. Anything by way of a prison or a jail before that, yeah, all the way back to Bible times, was really designed as a temporary place of confinement until the punishment, which was to be swift, it was to be concrete, it was to be decisive, was carried out. Our, our bizarre system today is, is bent more towards villains than the victims, but... I'm going to stop there. Now, through Isaiah, God actually prophesied that he had anointed one of these foreign entities. And when you read the wording of this guy, in fact, it's in Isaiah 44, verse 28. This is where he speaks of Cyrus. But look how Cyrus, this pagan king, is called. He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built into the temple. Your foundation shall be laid. And then the very next verse in the next chapter says, thus says the Lord to his anointed. That's, that's the same verbiage that's used of Jesus. To Cyrus, whose right hand I've grasped to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. The reason I'm reading this to you is because of what I said a little bit earlier. God uses governing authorities to unwittingly at times do his bidding on the earth. I remember when I first read Romans 13 and found out that the governing authorities, I mean, right down to the local municipalities, police officers, they're ministers of God. I, when my brother became a Christian, my, he, and he, he was the first one to get saved in our family, he became a pastor. I was the second one to come to Christ. I became a pastor. Then my other brother got saved and... He was a police officer. <laughs> and I came to Romans 13 and I said, dude, you're a minister. He thought that was pretty cool. And you should too. Because those involved in any area of enforcement ordained by the governing authorities are our ministers. They're ministers of God even. Got a great amen from a police officer back there, I'm sure. Maybe I didn't, I don't know. Let me move on. Because government is intended to demonstrate God's justice. Look at the wording here. He makes it pretty clear, does he not? Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to what? Bad. Would you have no fear of the one who has authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. So, this is... What government is intended to do, demonstrate the justice of God. One commentator, actually, and I like this, he, he imagines that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote this letter, knowing it was going to Rome, Rome was the seat of authority, was it not? I mean, he was writing to the Roman Christians, but he, he thought that perhaps this, this great letter would get to the governing authorities, perhaps the Senate, and maybe even Caesar himself. 
And the idea there would be that, that then Caesar would see that God is over all things. And, uh, and that Christians are, are designed by God and called by God to comply, not defy the governing authorities. And so one writer, in fact, John Piper sees Paul writing in kind of an idealistic kind of a way. He's not saying there aren't times to disobey the government. And the scripture makes that clear. There are times. But what he's saying is that normally, under regular circumstances, that would not be the case. And you want to keep in mind, by the way, that this being written in the first century, the Jews were notoriously defying the governing authorities. They, I mean, Rome never, they, they were constantly trying to figure out what to do with the Jews. Because they would, you know, Pilate comes in with these standards that had Roman, you know, a picture of the Roman Caesar, in, you know, embossed on the cloth. And, you know, the, the, the Jewish priest went crazy because that was an image and only an image. You can't, that's an image and we can't, we don't have images. And then Pilate capitulated and took him down. And these are some of the background to what, why Pilate was so incensed by the time they brought Jesus to him. He hated them. And so Paul knows this too. And he's trying to convey to the, possibly, he's kind of conveying to the governing authorities, look, Christians aren't supposed to be like the Jewish people have been like. We're supposed to be obedient. So it's this kind of code. I don't know if that's true or not, but I, it's very intriguing to me. But look what he says here, and, and look how Peter complies with what Paul says. Peter says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors, as sent by him to, watch this, punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So there's your simple, positive Reasons for government. Punish the bad guys, praise the good guys. Punish people who defy authority in its various ways and praise or bless or help those who do well. So, on what basis does the government... That, this is good. All of these things conjure up all kinds of questions. On what basis does the government bless or praise or punish a people and that's going to be that's the government derives its responses to good and to bad by the moral code that's sort of inserted into it and we see that code kind of getting corrupted here in our own government just the same listen carefully there seems to be a divinely sort of intrinsically moral code that god has placed into governments, uh, and it's based off of human nature. No government that is truly functional will turn a blind eye to murder and uh, rape and to thievery. Why is that? Because somehow God is divinely placed into the, the moral code of human government, this desire to curb evil. That's why we say that any government is better than no government at all. Do you agree with that? If you don't believe that, then drop yourself into Mogadishu, Somalia, and try to live there for a month. Where, you know, where it is governed by warlords. Totally the survival of the fittest. One more thing. We ought to submit because government provides a conscience 
barometer for the Christian. You see that in verses 5 through 7 where he says, Therefore, one must be in subjection. So he's just keeping this theme threaded throughout. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but for conscience' sake. For because of this, you pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what's owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes do, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. You know, after becoming a Christian, and for, even for a couple of years, uh, my conscience bothered me every time I went by a police car that had the radar going. Even if I was under the speed limit. Because that wasn't my life before I was a Christian. And until I was able to see, I don't need to be afraid of this guy. I'm doing good. I don't have to be afraid of him. That's the idea here. So, there are many laws in our land that are beyond ridiculous. Am I right? Let's just get your frustration off the table here, all right? Would you agree? I remember when the seatbelt law seemed ridiculous. Doesn't seem so ridiculous now. Here's the bottom line. Listen carefully. How does it affect your conscience? You know, when he says obey for wrath's sake versus conscience sake, he's saying you don't just obey the law because the cop is sitting there in the corner. You obey the law because God is always watching. That's the idea. So if a police officer clocks me at 45 and a 30... I've been seen. I will be ticketed. I will pay the fine. If, on the other hand, there is no police car and I'm traveling 45 and a 30, my conscience should become my radar, right? Or it should. Oh, by the way, I bought a, I bought a used car not long ago. And I was on my way home having just purchased it. And I went across one of those stationary vehicles again. And I, it was in a place, and they surprised me. I, I never knew they were going over here. And I'm pretty sure I was over the speed limit. And I thought, I bristled. And then this creepy kind of smile came across my face. Because I didn't have any plates on my car yet. I have no idea why I just shared that with you. (laughs) Anyway, I can't even find an application for that, so let's just move on. (laughs) We look at these last couple of verses, and it says, you know, you pay taxes, you give honor, and all of this, and we bristle at some of those things. But my conscience is not being violated when I have to pay a higher percentage of tax. I don't like it. My sense of justice has been affected, but not my conscience. Taxes only become conscience issues when I cheat on them, right? So what are conscience issues that lend themselves towards civil disobedience? I mean, that's where you wanted to go today, isn't it? I had a Christian friend here just recently tell me 
And he, he, he's, he's actually a pastor, older gentleman, very politically active as well. He said to me, he says, you know, nations are made up of borders, culture, and language. And, I, and uh, he went on to say that he was tired of compromising that, given the whole amnesty thing and all these things that are going on right now. And, and he said, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to compromise anymore. I compromise on, on the right to life for the unborn. And I listened to him. Uh, he was passionate. Nations are made up of, again, culture, language, borders. And I thought to myself, I thought to myself, are those really conscience issues? Is that a conscious thing? Let me say this before I say what I'm going to conclude with. My main job is to teach and preach the text, not exhaust its applications. That's your job. Not mine. I'll say it again. My main job is to teach the text of God's word, not to exhaust all of its applications. Let that sink in a little bit. So, here's a queen under a despotic law of Persia back in the day, when her people, she finds out, are facing annihilation, virtual annihilation. The law clearly states that she is not to enter her king's presence uninvited, but her conscience tells her something differently. And so she tells her uncle, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Here's three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They find themselves standing amidst thousands of people who are bowing down before this idol in the plains of Dura, this idol that of Nebuchadnezzar, And they refuse to bow down. They're hauled in front of him. Many of you know the story. Nebuchadnezzar is furious. As much as he likes these guys, he doesn't like the fact that they have defied him. He stokes that thing seven times hotter, enough to incinerate them on contact. And they look at him and they say, Oh, king, look. Our God is able to deliver us from that fiery furnace of yours, and we are trusting him. But if he doesn't choose to know this, we will not bow down to that idol. Same book, different character, actually the main character of the book. The king's super ego has been stoked by the enemies of our hero, Daniel. And so much so, they've gotten him to lay down this decree that for one month, you don't worship anybody but the king. He likes that. He signs it off. It's so irreversible because of the laws of the Medes and Persians. You can't, even, even the king with his own conscience, his own conscience being defiled, can't reverse the law. 
And what does Daniel do? He does what he's always done. He goes up in front of the window, kneels down, prays like he always did, gets caught, thrown in the lion's den. You know the story. Here's Peter and company. They have been hauled in by the authorities for preaching that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to have their sins forgiven. They are beaten. They are told that you must not preach like this anymore. And Peter says, we ought to obey God, what? Rather than men. Thus laying down the divine precedent for God honoring civil disobedience. We ought to obey God rather than men. By the way, why do these verses, why do these stories, why do these characters, why do these men and women so incite us, draw us, inspire us? Why? Isn't it because we secretly want to be like them? Isn't that the reason? We imagine ourselves as in those very positions, don't we? We don't, we don't imagine ourselves like Jonah running away. We don't imagine ourselves like Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane acting in his own flesh and then running away. We don't imagine ourselves like John Mark under the pressure of missional ministry. He runs off and runs away. How many of you women imagine yourselves like Yudia and Syntyche? You'd like to be like them. Who Paul said to those women in Philippi, please, could you just get along? Is that who you want to be like? How many of you businessmen want to be like Diotrephes? who John says he loved secretly, loved authority, and hated the authorities above him in the church and resisted them. Is that who you want to be like? You want to be like Diotrephes? No. No, a thousand, thousand, thousand times no. We dream to be like Daniel. We dream to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We dream to be like Esther. We dream to be like Peter after he's been filled with the Spirit of God, standing up against the authorities and saying, we rather obey God. We have to obey God rather than men. We dream to be like this. All of these individuals defied authority, but listen carefully, not for personal gain. Not for personal respect, not for personal vindication, not for personal anything, but for God and God only, his gospel, his glory, and the, the, the word spread out. That's the only reason they did it, and that's the only reason we should ever defy the authorities that God puts on us. They defied authorities for sure. For the truth of God, for the people of God, for the gospel of God. What's more, none of them mounted campaigns. None of them started riots. None of them defied authorities. None of them acted belligerently. None of them had this in-your-face kind of attitude. And I would say to all of you that are children, young children that can understand this message that I'm preaching, Dream. Dream big. You can dream about throwing 
a touchdown pass in the Super Bowl or hitting a home run in the seventh game of the World Series or sinking a long putt in the Masters. You could dream about becoming the President of the United States or you could dream about taking your stand for the King of all kings and Lord of all lords and for his gospel. Dream big that way. I think of the reformer John Knox, who when he was a little boy, this fiery preacher who bloody Mary, Mary Tudor, the woman who hated Christianity, she said of John Knox, I fear his prayers more than all the armies of Europe. John Knox was a fiery preacher. John Knox wasn't afraid of anybody. But when he was a little boy in the 1500s and seeing what his forefathers were enduring, who the, what the current environment was like, lovers of Jesus, preachers of the gospel, Roman priests who were defying the Roman government and, and who had loved, fell in love with Jesus and the gospel were being burned to the stake. John Knox put his hand, as a little boy, over the flame of a candle and held it there as long as he could stand it. As sort of practice to see what he might be able to endure if he stood up for Jesus when he was older. Well, he did. Ironically, he didn't die at the stake like so many of his friends did. But God would have you and me to dream much bigger than getting your rights, your personal unalienable rights taken care of. Let's just stop this. We are followers of the king above all kings. We submit to the authorities that God has given to us. And the only question is, is he your ultimate authority? You remember the story of... uh, of uh, Jesus' detractors coming to him one day. And they, they, they're always trying to trip him up. So they come to him and they say, hey, is it, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we be paying Caesar? And what did Jesus say? He said, give me a coin. They gave him a coin. They gave him a denarii. He said, whose image is on the coin? And they said, Caesar. He said, okay, we'll pay Caesar what's his. Pay God what's God's. Ravi Zacharias, the great Christian apologist, sort of imagines what it would have been like if that conversation in Scripture could have been extended just a little bit more. What might that man have said in response to Jesus? He might have said, well, then what do I pay to God? To which Jesus would have said, whose image is on you? Everyone in this room was created in the image and likeness of the eternal God. Now, it's a, it's a messed up image because of our sin, right? So along comes the perfect reflection, the perfect image, the very imprint of God, Hebrews 1 says, Jesus Christ never sins, but takes yours on himself, and then he dies for you. And then he rises again for you. And then 
He says, believe on me. If you believe in Jesus, you don't just get the image of God. You get Jesus in you, Christ in you. And you start to conform more into his image. And you become much more effective in a world that doesn't get it when Christians say, I have to obey God when it comes to conscience issues. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Is he your king? Is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Come on, really, is he? Where is your salvation? What are you trusting in? Jesus Christ, to whom the government will rest on his shoulder, is your only hope in any economy. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this time we could be in your word. May we understand or come to understand just a little bit more about our responsibilities as followers of Jesus underneath this great system that you placed us upon, Lord. You've, this system, Lord, this incredible system in the United States of America has given us unprecedented freedom to share your gospel with others. And we thank you for that. Either way, Lord, I pray you'd bless all of our brothers and sisters in Jesus under these oppressive systems, threatening systems, harsh systems, persecuting systems. And may they, Lord, continue to be a sweet-smelling savor for you and greatly useful for you. And may we, using the freedoms that you have given us, exercise those freedoms to the fullest while showing tremendous humility and gratitude to you for what you have given us. I do pray for those here, Lord, who have never received Jesus as their Savior. They have never submitted to him, their King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who died and rose again for them, that today would be the day they would submit their heart to him. Thank you for this time we've had together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand.